I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me tonight. A while back, you may recall, I read Harriet Beecher Stowe's The Ghost in the Mill from her 1872 collection, Sam Lawson's Old Town Fireside Tales. I heard from a number of you who said you enjoyed the story, but were puzzled by the ending. At the end of that story, taking the boys down to the cellar to get a mug of cider, Sam tells them, If you want to lead a pleasant and prosperous life, you must contrive always to keep just the happy medium between truth and falsehood. Now that there's my motto. He goes on and says, There are folks that's so kind of toppin' about spirits and sich, come sift em down, you generally find they knows one story that kind of puzzles em. Now you mind, and just ask your Aunt Lois about Ruth Sullivan. What an intriguing ending for a story. It turns out that it was Harriet Beecher Stowe's hook for the next story in the collection. Here it is, in response to your requests, a gentle, leisurely, fireside ghost story without bloodshed or mayhem, but beautifully constructed and rendered. It's called The Sullivan Looking Glass. Lois, said I, what was that story about Ruth Sullivan? Aunt Lois's quick black eyes gave a surprised flash, and she and my grandmother looked at each other a minute significantly. Who told you anything about Ruth Sullivan? She said sharply. Nobody. Somebody said you knew something about her, said I. I was holding a skein of yarn for Aunt Lois, and she went on winding in silence, putting the ball through loops and tangled places. "'Little boys shouldn't ask questions,' she concluded at last sententiously. "'Little boys that ask too many questions get sent to bed.' I knew that of old, and rather wondered at my own hardihood. Aunt Lois wound on in silence, but looking in her face I could see plainly that I had started an exciting topic. "'I should think,' pursued my grandmother in her corner, that Ruth's case might show you, Lois, that a good many things may happen more than you believe. Oh, well, mother, Ruth's was a strange case, but I suppose there are ways of accounting for it. You believed Ruth, didn't you? Oh, certainly I believed Ruth. Why shouldn't I? Ruth was one of my best friends, and as true a girl as lives. There wasn't any nonsense about Ruth. She was one of the sort— said Aunt Lois, reflectively, that I'd as soon trust as myself. When she said a thing was so-and-so, I knew it was so. Then, if you think Ruth's story was true, pursued my grandmother, what's the reason you're always caviling at things just because you can't understand how they came to be so? Aunt Lois set her lips firmly and wound with grim resolve. She was the very impersonation of that obstinate rationalism that grew up at the New England fireside, close alongside of the most undoubting faith in the supernatural. "'I don't believe such things,' at last she snapped out, "'and I don't disbelieve them. I just let them alone. What do I know about them? Ruth tells me a story, and I believe her. I know what she saw beforehand came true in a most remarkable way. Well, I'm sure I've no objection.' 
One thing may be true, or another, for all me. But just because I believe Ruth Sullivan, I'm not going to believe right and left all the stories in Cotton Mather and all that anybody can hawk up to tell. Not I. This whole conversation made me all the more curious to get at the story thus dimly indicated, and so we beset Sam for information. "'So your Aunt Lois wouldn't tell you nothing,' said Sam. "'Want to know now, show?' "'No, she said we must go to bed if we asked her. "'That ours a way folks has, but you see, boys,' said Sam, "'while a droll, confidential expression crossed the lackluster dolefulness of his visage. "'You see, I put you up to it, "'cause Miss Lois is so large and commanding in her ways, "'and so kind of up and down in all her doings, "'that I like once in a while to sort of gravel her, "'and I knowed enough to know that that our question "'would get her in a tight place. "'You see, your Aunt Lois was knowing to all this here about Ruth, "'so there weren't no getting away from it, "'and it's about as remarkable a providence "'as any of them of uh, Mr. Cotton Marther's Magnilly. "'So if you'll come up in the barn chamber this afternoon, "'where I've got a lot of flax to hatchel out, "'I'll tell you all about it.' So that afternoon beheld Sam arranged at full length on a pile of top-toe in the barn chamber, hatcheling by proxy by putting Harry and myself to the service. "'Well, now, boys, it's kind of refreshing to see how well you take hold,' he observed. "'Nothing like being industrious while you're young. Great sight better now than loafing off down in them medders. "'In books and work and useful play let my first years be past.' so shall I give for every day some good account at last. But, Sam, if we work for you, you must tell us that story about Ruth Sullivan. Lord and massy, yes, course I will. I've had the best kind of chances of knowing all about that, are. Well, you see, there was old General Sullivan. He lived in state and grandeur in the old Sullivan house out to Roxbury. I've been to Roxbury and seen that air house at General Sullivan's. "'There was one time that I was a considerable spell looking around in Roxbury, "'a kind of seeing how things was there, "'and whether or no there mightn't be some sort of providential opening or something. "'I used to stay with Aunt Polly Ginger. "'She was sister to Mehitable Ginger, General Sullivan's housekeeper, "'and had me in and out of the Sullivan house, "'and kind of kept the run of how things went and came in it. "'Polly, she was a kind of cousin of my mother's, and always glad to see me. Fact was, I was pretty handy round house, and she used to save up her broken things and sitch till I come round in the fall, and then I'd mend them up and put the clock right and split her up a lot of kindlings and board up the cellar windows and kind of make her sort of comfortable, she being a lone body and no man around. As I said, it was sort of convenient to have me, so I just got the run of things in the Sullivan house pretty much as if I was one of them. "'General Sullivan, he kept a grand house, I tell you. "'You see, he come from the old country "'and felt sort of lordly and grand, "'and they used to have the greatest kind of doings there "'to the Sullivan house. "'You ought to have seen that air house, "'great big front hall and great wide stairs, "'none of your steep kind that breaks a fellow's neck "'to get up and down, "'but great broad stairs with easy risers, "'so they used to say you could have cantered a pony "'up that air stairway easy as not.' Then there was great wide rooms and sofas and curtains and great curtained bedsteads that looked sort of like fortifications, and pictures that was got in Italy and Rome and all of them heathen places. 
You see, the general was a dreadful worldly old critter, and was all for the pomps and the vanities. Lord a massy, I wonder what the old poor critter thinks about it all now, when his body's all gone to dust and ashes in the graveyard, and his soul's gone to tarnity. Well, that air ain't none of my business, only it shows the vanity of riches in a kind of striking light, and makes me content that I never had none. But Sam, I hope General Sullivan wasn't a wicked man, was he? Well, I wouldn't say he was really wickeder than the run, but he was one of these here high-steppin', big-feelin' fellers that seemed to be havin' their portion in this life. Dreadful proud he was, and he was pretty much sought on this world, and kept a sort of court going on around him. Well, I don't judge him or nobody. Folks that has the world is apt to get sought on it. Don't none on us do more than middlin' well. But, Sam, what about Ruth Sullivan? Ruth? Oh, yes, Ruth. Well, you see, the only crook in the old general's lot was he didn't have no children. Miss Sullivan, she was a beautiful woman, as handsome as a picture, but she never had but one child, and he was a son who died when he was a baby, and about broke her heart. And then, this here Ruth was her sister's child that was born about the same time, and when the boy died, they took Ruth home to sort of fill his place, and kind of comfort up Miss Sullivan. And then Ruth's father and mother died, and they adopted her for her own, and brought her up. Well, she grew up to be amazing handsome. Why, everybody said that she was just the light and glory of that old Sullivan place, and worth more than all the pictures and the silver and the jewels and all there was in the house. And she was just so innocent and sweet that you never see nothing to beat it. Well, your Aunt Lois, she got acquainted with Ruth one summer when she was up to Old Town a-visitin' at Parson Lothrop's. Your Aunt Lois was a gal then, and a pretty good-looking one, too, and somehow or other she took to Ruth, and Ruth took to her. And when Ruth went home, they used to be a-writin' backwards and forwards, and I guess the fact was Ruth thought about as much of your Aunt Lois as she did of anybody. You see, your aunt was a kind of strong, up-and-down woman that always knew certain just what she did know, and Ruth, she was one of them gals that seemed sort of like a stray lamb or a dove that sort of lost their way in the world and wants someone to show them where to go next. For, you see, the fact was, the old general and madam, they didn't agree very well. He wa'n't well pleased that she didn't have no children, and she was sort of jealous of him cause she got hold of some sort of story about how he was to have married somebody over there in England. So she got sort of riled up, just as women will, the best on them, and they was pretty apt to have spats, and one could give t'other as good as they sent, and by all accounts they fit pretty lively sometimes. And between the two, Ruth, she was sort of scared and fluttered like a dove that didn't know just where to settle. You see, there she was in that our great wide house where they was a feastin' and a prancin' and a dancin' and a goin' on like Ahasuerus and Herodias and all them old scripture days. There was a comin' and goin', and there was great dinners and great doin's, but no love. And you know, the scripture says, Better is a dinner of yarbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Well, I don't oughter say hatred, after all. 
I kind of reckon the old general did the best he could. The fact is, when a woman gets a kink in her head agin a man, the best on us don't always do just the right thing. Anyway, Ruth, she was sort of forlorn and didn't seem to take no comfort in the goings-on. The general, he was mighty fond of her and proud of her, and there wa'n't nothing too good for Ruth. He was free-handed, the general was. He dressed her up in silks and satins, and she had a maid to wait on her, and she had sets of pearl and diamond, and Madame Sullivan, she thought all the world on her and kind of worshipped the ground she trod on, and yet Ruth was sort of lonesome. You see, Ruth one calculated for grandeur. Some folks ain't. Why, that our summer she spent out to Old Town, she was just as chirk and chipper as a wren, a-wearin' her little sunbonnet, and goin' a-huckleberryin' and blackberryin' and diggin' sweet flag, and gettin' cowslops and dandelions. And she had a word for everybody, and everybody liked Ruth and wished her well. Well, she was sent for her health, and she got that and more, too. She got a sweetheart." "'You see, there was a Captain Oliver, a visitin' at the minister's that summer, a nice, handsome young man as ever was. He and Ruth and your Aunt Lois, they was together a good deal, and they was a-ramblin' and a-ridin' and a-sailin', and so Ruth and the Captain went the way of all the earth and fell dead in love with each other. Your Aunt Lois, she was knowing to it and all about it, cause Ruth, she was just one of them that wouldn't take a step without somebody to talk to.' Captain Oliver was of a good family in England, and so when he made bold to ask the old general for Ruth, he didn't say him nay, and it was agreed as they was young they would wait a year or two. If he and she was of the same mind, he should be free to marry her. Just right on that, the captain's regiment was ordered home, and he had to go, and the next they heard it was sent off to India, and poor little Ruth she kind of drooped and pined but she kept true and wouldn't have nothing to say to nobody that came out of her, and there was lots and cords of fellow as did come out of her. You see, Ruth had a taken way with her, and then she had the name of being a great heiress, and that always draws fellows as molasses draws flies. Well, then the news came that Captain Oliver was coming home to England, and the ship was took by the Algerines, and he was gone into slavery there among them heathen Mohammedans and what not. Folks seemed to think it was all over for him, and Ruth might just as well give up first as last, and the old general, he come to think she might do better, and he kept introducing one and another and trying to marry her off, but Ruth, she wouldn't. She used to write sheets and sheets to your Aunt Lois about it, and I think Aunt Lois, she kept her grit up. Your Aunt Lois, she'd have stuck by a man to the end of time if it had been her case, and so she told Ruth. Well, then, there was young Jeff Sullivan, the general's nephew, he turned up, and the general, he took a great fancy to him. He was next heir to the general, but he'd been a pretty rackety youngster in his young days, off to sea and what not, and sowed a considerable crop of wild oats. People said he'd been a-pirating off there in South America. Lord Massey, nobody rightly knew where he had been and where he hadn't. All was, he turned up at last all alive and chipper as a skunk blackbird. Well, of course, he made his court to Ruth, and the general, he rather backed him up in it. But Ruth, she wouldn't have nothing to say to him. Well, 
he come and took up his lodging at the general's, and he was just as slippery as an eel, and sort of slid into everything that was going on in the house and about it. He was here, and he was there, and he was everywhere, and a-having his say about this and that, and he got everybody pretty much under his thumb. And they used to say he wound the general round and round like a skein of yarn, but he couldn't come it round Ruth. Well, the general said she shouldn't be forced, and Jeff, he was smooth as satin, and said he'd be willing to wait as long as Jacob did for Rachel. And so there he sat down, a watchin as patient as a cat at a mouse hole, cause the general he was thick set and short necked and drank pretty free and was one of the sort that might pop off any time. Well, Miss Sullivan she beset the general to make a provision for Ruth, cause she told him very sensible that he'd brought her up in luxury and that it wasn't fair not to settle something on her. And so the general he said he'd make a will and part the property equally between them. And he says to Jeff, if he played his part as a young fellow ought to know how, it would all come to him in the end, cause they hadn't heard nothing from Captain Oliver for three or four years, and folks about settled it that he must be dead. Well, the general, he got a letter about an estate that had come to him in England, and he had to go over. Well, living on the next estate was the very cousin of the generals that he was to a married when they were both young. The lands had joined so that the grounds run together. What came between them two nobody knows, but she never married, and there she was. There was high words between the general and Madame Sullivan about his going over. She said there wa'n't no sort of need on't, and he said there was, and she said she hoped she should be in her grave before he come back, and he said she might suit herself about that for all him." That hour was the story that the housekeeper told to Aunt Polly, and Aunt Polly, she told me. These here squabbles somehow always does kind of leak out one way or t'other. Anyhow, it was a house divided again itself at the general's when he was a-fixin' out for the voyage. There was Ruth a-goin' first to one and then to t'other, and tryin' all she could to keep peace between em, and then there was this master slick tongue talking this way to one side and that way to t'other, and the old general kind of like a shuttlecock between em. Well, then, the night afore he sailed, the general he had his lawyer up in his library there, a-looking over all his papers and bonds and things, and a-witnessing his will. And master Jeff was there as lively as a cricket, a-going into all affairs and offering to take precious good care while he was gone, and the general he had his papers and letters out, a-sortin' on em over, which was to be taken to the old country and which was to be put in a trunk to go back to lawyer Dennis's office. Well, Abner Ginger, Polly's boy, he that was footman and waiter then at the general's, he told me that about eight o'clock that evening he went up with hot water and lemons and spirits and sitch, and he see the great green table in the library all strewed and covered with piles of papers, and there was tin boxes a-standin' round, and the general a-packin' a trunk, and young Master Jeff as lively and helpful as a rat that smells cheese. And then the general, he says, Abner, he says, can you write your name? I hope so, general, says Abner. Well, then, Abner, says he, this is my last will, and I want you to witness it. 
And so Abner, he put down his name opposite to a place with a wafer and a seal. And then the general, he says, Abner, you tell Ginger to come here. That, you see, was his housekeeper, my Aunt Polly's sister, and a likely woman as ever was. And so they had her up, and she put down her name to the will, and then Aunt Polly, she was had up, she was drinking tea there that night, and she put down her name. And all of them did it with a good heart, cause it had got about among them that the will was to provide for Miss Ruth. For everybody loved Ruth, you see, and there was considerable many stories kind of going the rounds about Master Jeff and his doings. And they did say he sort of kept up the strife between the general and my lady, and so they didn't think none too well of him. And as he was next to kin, and Miss Ruth want none of the general's blood, you see, she was Miss Sullivan's sister's child, of course there wouldn't nothing go to Miss Ruth in way of law, and so that was why the signing of that there will was so much talked about among em. Well, you see, the general, he sailed the next day, and Jeff, he stayed by to keep watch of things. Well, the old general, he got over safe, for Miss Sullivan, she had a letter from him all right. When he got away, his conscience sort of nagged him, and he was minded to be a good husband. At any rate, he wrote a good loving letter to her, and sent his love to Ruth, and sent over lots of little keepsakes and things for her, and told her that he left her under good protection, and wanted her to try and make up her mind to marry Jeff, as that would keep the property together. Well, now, there couldn't be no sort of sugar sweeter than Jeff was to them lonely women. Jeff was one of the sort that could be all things to all women. He waited and he tended, and he was as humble as any snake in the grass that you ever see, and the old lady, she clean fell in with him. But Ruth, she seemed to have a regular spite agin him, and she that were as gentle as a lamb, that never had so much as a hard thought of a mortal critter, and wouldn't tread on a worm, she was so set against Jeff that she wouldn't so much as touch his hand when she got out of her carriage. Well, now, here comes the strange part of my story. Ruth was one of the kind that has the gift of seeing. She was born with a veil over her face. This mysterious piece of physiological information about Ruth was given with a look and air that announced something very profound and awful, and we both took up the inquiry, born with a veil over her face? How should that make her see? Well, boys, how should I know? But the fact is so. There's those as is well known as has the gift of seeing what others can't see. They can see through walls and houses. They can see people's hearts. They can see what's to come. They don't know nothing how tis, but this ear knowledge comes to them. It's a great gift, and that sort's born with a veil over their faces. Ruth was one of these here. Old Granny Badger, she was the knowingest old nuss in all these parts, and she was with Ruth's mother when she was born, and she told Lady Lothrop all about it. Says she, You may depend upon it, that child will have the second sight, says she. Oh, that air fact was well known. Well, that was the reason why Jeff Sullivan couldn't come it around Ruth, though he was silkier than a milkweed pod, and just about as patient as a spider in his hole, a-watchin' to get his grip on a fly. 
Ruth wouldn't argue with him, and she wouldn't flout him, but she just shut herself up in herself and kept a lookout on him. But she told your Aunt Lois just what she thought about him. Well, in about six months come the news that the general was dead. He dropped right down in his tracks, dead with apoplexy, as if he had been shot. And Lady Maxwell, she writ a long letter to my lady and Ruth. You see, he'd got to be Sir Thomas Sullivan over there, and he was a-coming home to take em all over to England to live in grandeur. Well, my lady Sullivan, she was then, you see, she took it dreadful hard. If they'd a been the lovingest couple in the world, she couldn't a took it harder. Aunt Polly, she said it was all cause she thought so much of him that she fit him so. There's women that think so much of their husbands that they won't let em have no peace of their life, and I expect it were so with her, poor soul. Anyway, she went right down smack when she heard he was dead. She was abed, sick, when the news come, and she never spoke nor smiled, just turned her back to everybody, and kind of wilted and wilted, and was dead in a week. And there was poor little Ruth left all alone in the world with neither kith nor kin but Jeff. Well, when the funeral was over, and the time appointed to read the will and settle up matters, there weren't no will to be found, nowhere, high nor low. Lawyer Dean, he flew round like a parched pea on a shovel. He said he thought he could have gone in the darkest night and put his hand on that there will. But when he went where he thought it was, he found it weren't there, and he knowed he'd kept it under lock and key. What he thought was the will turned out to be an old mortgage. Well, there was an awful row and a to-do about it, you may be sure. Ruth, she just said nothing good or bad, and her not speaking made Jeff a sight more uncomfortable than if she'd headed out with him. He told her it shouldn't make no sort of difference, that he should always stand ready to give her all she had, if she'd only take him with it. And when it came to that, she only gin him a look and went out of the room. Jeff, he flared and flounced and talked and went round and round a rumpusin among the papers, but no will was forthcoming, high or low. Well, now here comes what's remarkable. Ruth, she told this here all the particulars to your Aunt Lois and Lady Lothrop. She said that the night after the funeral she went up to her chamber. Ruth had the great front chamber opposite to Miss Sullivan's. I've been in it. It was a monstrous big room with outlandish furniture in it that the general brought over from an old palace out of Italy. And there was a great big looking-glass over the dressing-table that they said come from Venice that swung so that you could see the whole room in it. Well, she was a stand in front of this, just going to undress herself, a hearing the rain drip on the leaves, and the wind a-whishin' and a-whisperin' in the old elm-trees, and just a-thinkin' over her lot. And what should she do now, all alone in the world, when of a sudden she felt a kind of lightness in her head, and she thought she seemed to see somebody in the glass a-movin', and she looked behind, and there wa'n't nobody there. Then she looked forward in the glass, and saw a strange big room that she'd never seen before, 
with a long painted window in it, and alongside of this stood a tall cabinet with a good many drawers in it. And she saw herself and knew that it was herself in this room along with another woman whose back was turned towards her. She saw herself speak to this woman and point to the cabinet, and she saw the woman nod her head. She saw herself go to the cabinet and open the middle drawer and take out a bundle of papers from the very back end on't. She saw her take out a paper from the middle and open it and hold it up, and then she knew that there was the missin' will. Well, it all overcame her so that she fainted clean away, and her maid found her a lion front of the dressing table on the floor. She was sick of a fever for a week or fortnight at her, and your Aunt Lois, she was down taking care of her, and as soon as she got able to be moved, she was took out to Lady Lothrop's. Jeff, he was just as attentive and good as he could be, but she wouldn't bear him near her room. If he so much as set a foot on the stairs that led to it, she'd know it, and got so wild that he had to be kept from coming into the front of the house. But he was doing his best to buy up good words from everybody. He paid all the servants double, he kept every one in their places, and did so well by em all that the general word among em was that Miss Ruth couldn't do better than to marry such a nice, open-handed gentleman. Well, Lady Lothrop, she wrote to Lady Maxwell all that had happened, and Lady Maxwell she sent over for Ruth to come over and be a companion for her, and said she'd adopt her and be as a mother to her. Well then, Ruth, she went over with some gentlefolks that was going to England and offered to see her safe and sound, and so she was set down at Lady Maxwell's manor. It was a grand place, she said, and such as she never see before, like them old gentry places in England. And Lady Maxwell, she made much of her, and cosseted her up for the sake of what the old general had said about her. And Ruth, she told her all her story, and how she believed that the will was to be found somewhere, and that she should be led to see it yet. She told her, too, that she felt it in her that Captain Oliver wasn't dead, and that he'd come back yet. And Lady Maxwell, she took up for her with might and main, and said she'd stand by her. But then, you see, so long as there wasn't no will to be found, there weren't nothing to be done. Jeff was the next heir, and he got everything, stock and lot and the estate in England into the bargain. And folks was beginning to think pretty well of him, as folks always does when a body is up in the world and has houses and lands. Lordy Massey, riches all his covers a multitude of sins. Finally, when Ruth had been six months with her, one day Lady Maxwell got to telling her all about her history, and what had been between her and her cousin when they was young, and how they had a quarrel and he flung off to America, and all them things that it don't do folks no good to remember when it's all over and can't be helped. But she was a lone body, and it seemed to do her good to talk about it. Finally, she says to Ruth, says she, I'll show you a room in this house you ain't seen before. It was the room where we had that quarrel, says she, and the last I saw of him was there, till he come back to die, says she. 
So she took a great key out of her bunch, and she led Ruth along a long passageway to the other end of the house and opened on a great library. And the minute Ruth came in, she threw up her hands and gin a great cry. Oh, says she, this is the room, and there is the window, and there is the cabinet, and there in that middle drawer at the back end in a bundle of papers is the will. And Lady Maxwell, she said, quite dazed, go look, says she, and Ruth went, just as she seed herself do, and opened the drawer and drew forth from the back part a yellow pile of old letters. And in the middle of those was the will, sure enough. Ruth drew it out and opened it and showed it to her. Well, you see, that will give Ruth the whole of the general's property in America, though it did leave the English estate to Jeff. Well, the end-aunt was like a story-book. Jeff, he made believe, be mighty glad, and he said it must have been that the general had got flustered with a spirit and water and put that air will in among his letters that he was a-doin' up to take back to England, for it was in among Lady Maxwell's letters that she writ him when they was young, and that he'd a-kept all these years and was a-taken back to her. Well, Lawyer Dean said he was sure that Jeff made himself quite busy and useful that night, a-tying up the papers with red tape and a-packin' the general's trunk, and that, when Jeff gin him his bundle to lock up in his box, he never mistrusted but what he'd got it all right. Well, you see, it was just one of them things that can't be known to the judgment day. It might have been an accident, and then again, it might not and folks settled it one way or t'other, according to their opinion of Jeff. But you see how amazing handy for him it happened. Why, if it hadn't been for the providence I've been a-telling about, there it might a lain in them old letters that Lady Maxwell said she never had the heart to look over. It never would a turned up in the world. Well, said I, what became of Ruth? Oh, Captain Oliver, he came back all alive and escaped from the Algerines and they was married in King's Chapel and lived in the old Sullivan house in peace and prosperity. That's just how the story was, and now Aunt Lois can make what she's a mind to out of it. And what became of Jeff? Oh, he started to go over to England, and the ship was wrecked off the Irish coast, and that was the last of him. He never got to his property. Good enough for him, said both of us. Well, I don't know. It was pretty hard on Jeff. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. I'm glad I weren't in his shoes, though. I'd rather never had nothing. This year, hasten to be rich is such a dreadful temptation. Well, now, boys, you've done a nice lot of flax, and I guess we'll go up to your grandther's cellar and get a mug of cider. Talking always gets me dry. You've been listening to The Sullivan Looking Glass by Harriet Beecher Stowe. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please share the link with your friends. I'd be happy to add them to the free subscription list with notes sent out each week. Let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. 
I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. Thank you.